This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. We've been telling you for weeks about steadily declining gas prices in Southern California and across the country, but apparently those high gas prices are still having a major economic impact because inflation for the month of June continued at a record-setting pace. We'll go in-depth on what has been one of the weirdest American economies in recent memory. Uh, over 4,000 beagles, as in, you know, the dog, who just survived horrible conditions at a research facility in Virginia, they are looking for loving forever homes. So we will get you the details. And Starbucks is closing stores in L.A. and other West Coast cities because they say rampant homelessness has become too much for their staffers to handle. We'll look, at, look into whether that's the only reason, though. I say we adopt like 10 of the dogs as news hounds for the newsroom, and just everyone will thank us afterwards. But then what do you do with the other thousands? Well, the rest of the people listening they'll, will get those. They'll be jealous. We'll do what we can around here. Uh, California is going to become the first state in the country to formally move back the start time of the high schools and the middle schools. A little extra sleep could go a long way. BMW is starting to charge its customers in some countries a subscription fee if you want to use some of the features. Is that kind of thing going to come here? And then at the end of today's show, uh, MIT researchers, they predicted 50 years ago there would be a societal collapse here on Earth by 2040. We're getting closer to 2040, so we'll see if uh, they're going to be right. <laughs> it looks like they're predicted it's right on <laughs> Always <target. laughs> end with a big smile, you know? Yeah. Uh, though uh, talking about a smile, but no, uh, inflation, Catherine Rampell is a, an opinion columnist at The Washington Post, where she covers economics and personal finance. Catherine, thanks for being with us. Um, so we said at the outset that this is kind of a weird economy. I mean, we've had weirder ones, but this is certainly on, on the scale, isn't it? Absolutely. Weird is a technical term, I think, in, in oh, this context. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Um, yeah, I mean... In some ways, we have really great economic indicators, right? The job market is doing very well. If you look at the number of jobs being added per month, um, you know, it's slowed down from the record pace from earlier this year. But even so, over 300,000 jobs added per month the last few months in any economy, that would be something to write home about. Likewise, the unemployment rate is uh, quite low. It's 3.6%. Uh, once upon a time, economists didn't even think that that was even a realistic target to reach, 3.6%. They thought like the best you could hope for was maybe 4%. That was something like full employment. So the job market looks good. But then on the other hand, you have GDP growth, uh, well, GDP shrinking, in fact, the first quarter of this year, potentially also the second quarter of this year. We'll get those numbers in soon. And of course, the inflation numbers are awful. Um, so it's a very strange mixed bag, and it's hard to figure out how to characterize this economy, which, you know, oftentimes you get these mixed signals when you, when you have an economy in a transition. So maybe that's all we're seeing right now is that the economy is, is in a transition. We had this you know, huge disruptive event of the pandemic a couple of years, more than two years ago at this point. And as a result, we're striking a, a very unusual path right now. So is, is strange one of those other technical <laughs> terms along with weird? It's a strange sure. transition. Sure. I'll, I'll look it up in my Econ 101 right. textbook. How many people have said, I think each time we've done this, each month with someone has said, oh, this is the peak. This is it. It's down from here. But it hasn't happened yet. 
Yeah, it hasn't happened yet, unfortunately, which consumers don't want to see. You're, I assume you're talking about inflation. Yeah. But, you know, consumers don't want to see that. The president doesn't want to see that. Most of all, I think the Federal Reserve doesn't want to see that because month after month, there's this hope that um, price growth is going to cool a little bit. And so the Fed won't have to act as aggressively to get it under control because historically, the way the you know, policymakers deal with inflation is by raising interest rates, which which has the effect of basically making borrowing a little more costly, and that slows down spending, especially on, um, you know, interest rate sensitive sectors like housing, for example, or, or car purchases for that matter. So historically, that's what the Fed has had to do when when inflation has gotten uncomfortably high. And now, because we keep on seeing these inflation numbers coming in higher than expected, higher than anyone wants month after month, that implies that the Fed is going to have to basically stomp on the brakes harder. They're going to have to raise interest rates more than they had predicted a few months ago, maybe even a few days ago. Um, but, but Catherine, I have a question. When, yeah. But I have a question for you, though, in, in this strange, weird, weird world that we're now in. Uh, how come these experts every single time Every month that goes by and new metrics come out, we always hear a line similar to it's more than they expected. It's different than they expected. Aren't they supposed to be? I don't know. Experts. They're very hopeful people. Yeah. Well, you know, there's this old joke. I, it's, I don't know if it's from Yogi Berra, but it sounds like it could be a Yogi Berraism, which is that predictions are hard, especially about the future. Yeah. <laughs> um, and look, even in a normal economy, um, being able to forecast what is going on is really, really challenging because there are just so many moving parts. But in the current economy, it seems like it's almost impossible, right? Because again, we had this huge disruptive event of a global pandemic a couple of years ago. Um, and we haven't experienced something like this in over 100 years. And obviously, the economy 100 years ago is quite different from that today. So it has been playing out in really difficult to predict ways. And then on top of that, we've also had a series of very unfortunate shocks this year. Um, so even if for example, supply chains had been able to normalize by now, uh, or supply chain, you know, whatever disruptions there had been due to the pandemic, those had kind of worked themselves out. If men, if like factories were back up and running and you didn't have all of these lockdowns in China and all of that, you would still have um, a lot of other uh, unwelcome shocks, things like the war in Ukraine, for example. There's been an avian flu. I mentioned the uh, COVID lockdowns in China, um, but those I think nobody would have predicted would still be going on if, if you know you would ask someone a year ago. So there's been a lot of unlucky stuff. It's kind of one thing after another is how I would put it. Yeah, um, too much going on. Too, there's a lot going on. And I think, again, it's very hard to predict the path of, of how we're going, how anybody is going to respond, how global supply chains will respond in the post-pandemic world. Um, as we keep on getting these new COVID variants, as we have all of these other disruptive events. So it's really challenging. I mean, I think it's easy to say, how come these these idiot forecasters keep getting stuff wrong? But I think it's, 
it's it's hard. They have a, a hard job. But you know, and, but you know, you're yeah. you're you're right. It is easy to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we'll leave it. Yeah, uh, it Catherine Rampell at the Washington Post. Catherine, thanks. You know, you know what we should do, the two of us. Wear our seatbelts. No, no, no. For this economy, we should make our own economic predictions and see how they come out compared to the Fed. Mine is the shrugging emoji. The yeah, shrugging emoji. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I can I can go with that. Uh, Four thousand beagles. 4,000 escaping horrible conditions at a testing facility. They are now looking for a new forever home. This is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Still to come, California's high school and middle school students going to get some extra sleep because uh, there's a new law says you can't start before a certain point. So goodbye to that zero period stuff that some people used to do. And then later on, New York City comforting everyone by rolling out a Cold War era PSA on how to survive a nuclear attack. Right now, though, a dog breeding and research facility in Cumberland, Virginia, has long been the target of animal rights activists and state regulators over charges that the dogs kept there were living in unsafe and unsanitary conditions. Well, this week, that facility was officially closed down, and now the rush is on to find forever homes for some 4,000 beagles. Sue Bell is executive director of Homeward Trails Animal Rescue in Virginia. They've already taken in a few dozen of the beagles. Sue, thanks for being with us. So 4,000, I mean, it cannot be easy, can it? to no. be able to, to have 4,000 beagles uh, adopted? No, no, it is not easy at all, but uh, you know, it's a good problem to have. We're very, very thrilled to have the opportunity to get these dogs into homes, so we're rolling with it. So what is the plan to try and make that happen? I mean, there's a whole bunch of groups maybe like yours. You've taken a few dozen, but you gotta add that up and, and multiply. Correct. Uh, we're working very closely with the Humane Society of the United States, and we will be networking with uh, shelters and rescue groups across the country um, who are trusted partners, and we'll be taking in uh, a number of these dogs. Um, I can say right out there in California, we're, we're partnering with a group called Priceless Pets, and they will be taking in some beagles from this situation in the next couple of weeks. Um, and the Humane Society of the United States will be posting a website that will list all the groups receiving beagles by geography. So uh, if you are in a state out there and interested in adopting a beagle, you can check at the Humane Society of the United States in the coming days and see if there might be any coming to your area. And if people don't know, what exactly is the process of adopting a dog? Yeah, it's going to vary from organization to organization. Um, here at Homeward Trails, we have a pretty simple adoption application. We're just uh, doing our best to, to match up the right dog with the right person. Our motto is setting everyone up for success. And so we realize that, uh, you know, people have different needs and different circumstances, just like these dogs do. So once we get an application, we'll generally jump on a quick call with you, uh, get clear on what your needs are, what your, what your limitations are, and then we'll We'll kind of talk through with you what what the best fit is and, and try to get that dog in your home as soon as possible. Yeah, let's talk about the dogs. Do they range in age and everything? And, and obviously, we talked about some of the conditions they were in uh, apparently were just pretty horrible. Yeah, um, they do range in age. There are dogs who are full-grown adults. Uh, we are told there are a large number of pregnant beagles, a large number of beagles who are still nursing puppies and then puppies who have since been weaned from the moms, but are still pups. Um, so out of that 4,000, we expect several hundred, if not thousand puppies 
um, and then adult dogs. Have you ever seen anything like this in your experience? No, we've been around for 20 years and we've definitely dealt with some large scale hoarding situations, uh, but nothing, nothing in the realm of 4,000 dogs. Uh, we, we thought it was a big uh, task when we were uh, chosen to take 500 dogs from this company starting this February, but 4,000 uh, dogs requires uh, just a whole network of trusted partners. And, and we are happy to be leading this effort with the Humane Society of the United States, but there are going to be a number, number of groups coming in to help. Um, we certainly could not do this alone. I wonder, though, too, on the flip side, if people are going to hear this and go, oh, my gosh, it's so horrible. And maybe I've been thinking about getting a dog. I mean, no time like now with all of these that are going to need places to go. Yes, we are hearing from those people already. Um, overwhelmed is not even an adequate word to, to, to describe how I'm feeling today with the outreach we've received. Um, and people are saying just that, hey, we've been thinking about getting a dog. This is a great opportunity. Um, and what we tell people is, you know, beagles by nature are fantastic dogs. They are, they are loving, their personalities are wonderful. Um, they're not for everyone. They can have, you know, some traits that people find challenging. These particular dogs are also going to range in their their social ability. So we're uh, we like all the other groups participating. We'll be evaluating each dog um, and and talking very honestly and openly with every adopter to make sure again that we're that we're making those those perfect matches. Sue Bell, executive director, Homeward Trails Animal Rescue out in Virginia. I had two beagles. Yeah, yeah. Did you like them? Yeah. Get yeah. two more. Uh, no, two was was fine. <laughs> Do is fine. Starbucks closing down some of its L.A. stores. They say because homeless population becoming too problematic for its employees, but maybe there are some other reasons. We'll go into that. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. And uh, as we get to the end later of the show, we're going to look at a 50-year-old prediction of total societal collapse on earth by 2040 yes it's a real cheerful envision mad max yeah you know that's what we're going for yeah and there's some new uh research that shows that we are unfortunately still on track to do ourselves in uh, but before we do ourselves in bmw wants to charge some car owners to use their own car accessories things like you know, their seat warmers or the uh, the heated steering wheel. Or the super fancy headlights. Or the super fancy headlights. You, you get regular bulbs. Yeah, cough up the money. All right, we'll talk about that later on. Right now, Starbucks announcing they're closing 16 stores in L.A., Seattle, Portland, and um, these cities have something in common, very high homeless populations. Starbucks citing ongoing problems for the employees to manage people coming and going. Jessica Lal, president and CEO, the Central City Association of L.A., so, Jessica, um, reaction to this, and I guess from Starbucks' perspective, in their letter, they're saying they're getting a lot of complaints from their employees who just basically don't feel safe. They feel like they can't run the place like like they want to. Absolutely. Thanks so much for, for having me. We are absolutely devastated to see businesses closing because of safety concerns. You know, we understand that their priority must be keeping their employees safe. But stores like Starbucks provide places for the community to be inside, to have Wi-Fi, and to really be a place of connection. So, you know, losing coffee shops is more than just 
a loss of jobs at a time when we're trying to recover from a pandemic, but it's really more globally the fracturing of our community. Um, I think, you know, we've seen some of the high profile violent crime attacks over the last few months, including um, most recently Olympian Clem Glass, who was attacked last weekend in the middle of the day by someone who has a record of attacking people in downtown with dangerous objects. We lost Sandra Sells, a nurse who was assaulted waiting for a bus at Union Station. She died from her injuries earlier this year. And the reality really is, is that these incidents are happening often, daily, and people who are experiencing homelessness are also dying and suffering in the streets, um, even if they don't make you know, the, the daily paper. Um, I see this, our members at CCA uh, really see this as a lose, lose, lose for everyone involved, obviously, to varying degrees. I mean, I think it's really important that we don't want to just conflate homelessness with crime, but people experiencing homelessness each have their own lived experiences. Um, but without doubt, there are certainly situations where people yeah. are you know, experiencing homelessness who have a history of mental health challenges and substance abuse, and they need services from our local government. Right. Uh, but I also don't want to take at face value the explanation being given by Starbucks. Um, you know, there is a, as I'm sure you know, uh, there's a unionization drive that Starbucks is going through. They're paying their employees a lot more in cities like L.A. than in some other parts of the country. And, for example, one of the ones that's closing, I'm familiar with it, and there's another one only about two and a half blocks away. It seems hard for me to believe anyway that the situation at one is so dire when the situation two blocks away seems to be just fine. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, I think um, when when companies close retail establishments, I'm sure there are various factors that go into it. And it's it's sometimes easy to play up um, on people's fears or what people are seeing transpire on a daily basis. But I think the reality is for those who um, live downtown, work downtown, have businesses downtown, they're seeing these unprovoked violent attacks they're seeing people living in tents and suffering. We're seeing people prey upon those um, on the streets. And so I think we have to, um, you know, like you said, take the, not take things necessarily in, in totality, but look at the bigger picture and what's missing. And I'm, you know, we represent at CCA over 300 businesses and nonprofits all operating in the downtown area. And I think there's large concern about the multitude of crises we're seeing on the streets and how that is impacting people's quality of life. And that cannot be ignored. Well, also, I wonder, you know, if I'm a store manager or something and there's something going on and it's making people uncomfortable, if I'm going to call the city and, and ask for some help and it takes them three hours to get there, then that's going to ruin everybody's day. Yeah, I think the experience, I don't, you know, I think there's without doubt uh, situations that happen that make people feel uncomfortable, whether um, that's an employee, whether that's, you know, someone patroning the, the store. Um, and we have to, uh, the cities and the county have to work to deliver services better. I think we've seen Councilman DeLeon do a lot more around public safety and supporting downtown LA uh, through the budget process. At CCA, we've made public safety and wellness a top priority and have advocated for the council to do more things like increasing bike patrols, which may make it easier for community members to approach and quickly navigate downtown's busy streets um, to address what you're talking about, which is in the moment, um, the visibility of having more footbeat officers that are dedicated to downtown can prevent crimes through visibility. 
um, again, fosters more community engagement, community partnerships, um, and then really also having more trained unarmed professionals through the city circle program, which is currently operating in Venice and Hollywood. We see this as an appropriate response to people suffering from mental health crises. Um, there will also be a circle team operating from Little Tokyo, so likely within the area where the two Starbucks in downtown were closed. And we hope, you know, this is not, there's no one silver bullet, right, that's going to address um, the, the, the multi layers of things that we're talking about, but we hope that these are key elements that can collectively um, increase safety and, and perception of safety. All right, Jessica Lal, President, CEO, Central City Association of LA. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Most parents and teenagers will tell you weekday mornings are the most miserable times in the house. The struggle to get the teens up, get them ready for school before 8 in the morning. But a uh, new law here, first of its kind in the country, is going to give middle and high school students and the parents some extra time in the morning. Starting in late August, when kids head back to classrooms, no middle or high school in the state can open earlier than 8.30 in the morning. Lisa L. Lewis is a parent of teenagers. Uh, she's author of the book, The Sleep Deprived Teen, and she helped get this new law passed. Lisa, thanks for being uh, with us. So uh, I don't know. I mean, is it that difficult for young kids to go to a, I don't know, 7.30 class or even a 7 a.m. class if, if it helps the distribution of students in crowded schools? Well, actually, it, it is a very difficult thing for teens to do, and that's in part because Teens have a circadian rhythm shift. That happens at the start of adolescence, which means that they are no longer sleepy as early as they used to be in the evening, nor does um, that melatonin subside until later in the morning. So they're on a, a different later schedule than when they were younger children. And so for them to get the recommended eight to 10 hours of sleep, in many cases, they do need to be sleeping later in the morning than they currently have been allowed to do, which is the unfortunate situation when schools start too early in the morning. Okay, and now pushing it to 8.30, how much difference is that actually making? I mean, how early were some of these schools starting? I, I can't remember now, but there was zero period before first period, and I never took zero because, A, I wasn't an overachiever, and, B, I didn't want to wake up. But some kids were getting there earlier than I was. Oh, absolutely. Well, and to your point, zero period, which happens, which is an optional period that, that kids can elect to take before the start of the official school day, those can still happen. So this new law has to do with the start of the official school day. So in California, public high schools can start no earlier than 830 in the morning and public middle schools no earlier than eight o'clock in the morning. And the issue is right now we have so many schools that are starting earlier than that, and in some cases far earlier than that. So I mentioned that those requirements, 8.30 in the morning for high schools, that's what's recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And yet we have high schools in the state that have been starting as early as 7 a.m. And that's period one, not optional zero period. That's mandatory attendance, be in your seat, or else you are marked absent or truant. Yeah, I don't know, but, but you know... Uh... When I went to school uh, all those years ago, uh, I used to have classes the that were... The chisel and the stone? Yeah, no, no, but, but it was that early, and, you know, everybody survived, and they did quite nicely. And I, and I wonder if there are people listening who might be thinking, maybe these kids were a little bit too delicate. Well, so I also went to high school many years ago. I'm not going to say how long ago. But I will say, I think the um, expectations on teens have absolutely ramped up since it was since back then. 
Um, school start times have drifted earlier over time, which is part of the issue, but the expectations on them have ramped up too in terms of the number of honors level classes that they are quote unquote expected to take in order to get into a good college in terms of the number of extracurriculars. So certainly the overload piece is, is a key part of the equation. But the reality is with schools that start times that have drifted earlier over time, and the fact that now we know, you know, there is an official policy statement from the American Academy of Pediatrics for teen health and well-being. Schools should start no earlier than 8.30 because those school start times are really a major contributing factor to sleep deprivation. And it's making everything that much more difficult for our teens. So, so now that we know and now that that's the official recommendation, it is time to do better, which is exactly what California is doing. With all the demands, though, and all the stuff that they have to do if they want to get into Stanford, I mean, are more of them just going to end up taking that zero period anyways and still getting there at 7 or 6.30 or, or what have you? Well, that's a good point. So zero period is still allowed, but really best practice would be not to do that. And, it, you know, in, in doing the research I did for my book, The Sleep Deprived Teen, I did talk to various superintendents, including one in Maine, who when they implemented later start times in their district, he actually forbade um, early practices before school for sports teams, late night practices, because, yes, those can absolutely contribute to the issue as well. Lisa L. Lewis, parent of teens, and uh, the book Sleep Deprived Teen. I know everybody in this newsroom is sleep deprived, and look at what it, what it does to us. Yeah, we get the, the coffee machine. Yeah. It's a workout every day. <laughs> Coming up, you know how the... Uh, just dropped my pen. Coming up, you know how the... Not that people needed to know too. that. but There I, we go. There we go. <laughs> now we're even. Uh, what was I saying? Oh, yes, you know how the air, airlines charge you for uh, every seemingly minor service. Well, that same treatment is now coming to your cars. This is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. If you drive a BMW in countries like Mike's waving his hand. But not in these countries. But you're not. In this country, country, I do. But, but in this country, you do. Okay. But if you, if you were, say, in South Africa mm -hmm. or Germany or mm -hmm. South Korea or uh, the UK, and you want to, say, warm up your backside. With yeah, because I'm warmer. in the UK and it's cold. Because it's cold there, right? But if you want to turn on the seat warmer, it's going to cost you money. BMW is rolling out a trial subscription service in those countries and a few more where drivers will have to pony up between 15 and $30 a month if they want to use their own seat warmers. And it is likely that BMW will not stop with just the seat warmers. Your ability to use all sorts of basic car functions could soon be tied to monthly subscriptions. All right. We have questions. Vanessa Tan, Senior Research Manager at Kelly Blue Book, is with us. Vanessa, thanks. So is this an interesting scenario? Because software is one thing, right? Like they'll give you Apple CarPlay for a year when you get the car, and then you got to fork over money for it, or you're just using the normal Bluetooth connection. But is this the first time we've seen it with like hardware, things that you press a button for? No, I mean... Well, let's think, let's think back now. Remember satellite radio, right? Since we're on the radio, I think this would be the most relevant. So remember, um, cars are equipped with some type of equipment for satellite radio. And if you want to subscribe, you, the, the hardware is there, you just pay a monthly payment. So think of it as a further extension and OEMs are being more creative with different features that they're putting out there with both hardware and software. So with the seat warmers that they're doing in other countries, um, it's just a different way of monetizing. 
Um, well, but that's and, but that, yeah, but that but that's the thing because I don't think of it, and I don't think many listeners will think of it as an extension. I think they'll think of it as a ripoff. That if you're in a car and you want to, you know, you buy the car and it mm-hmm. ha- and it's equipped with a, a seat that can heat or a steering wheel that could heat. Uh, that isn't that kind of what you're buying the car for, and to have to pay to turn on the switch and heat up the the seat seems like a bit much. Yes and no. It just depends on you know the type of feature, for example. And and you're right. Uh, I would say based on the research that we at KBB did, most people will feel like what you just said. Um, When we did our research earlier this year, we asked people, hey, are you aware of this? And surprisingly, half of the people are aware that there's some type of subscription um, on-demand feature that's available. But then we asked, okay, are you willing to pay for something like that, like heated seats or um, lane assist or remote keyless entry? And most people feel like what you just said, 75% of the people we surveyed said, you know what, we're not going to pay. But then there is still that quarter of the people out there who are willing to pay. However, there's certain features they're willing to pay. And you're right, heated seats is just not one of them. Okay, but if I go to the car lot, and if I haven't ordered a car, I'm going to go to the lot, and I'm going to look at the sticker, and it says all the features, and it says uh, heating wheel, 500 bucks, right? If yes. this is a subscription thing, does that 500 come off when I buy the car and then I just pay for it if I want to use it? You know what I mean? Or am I paying for everything on that car like it's fully loaded and then they're going to charge me again to use the thing? Well, from what I know, and this is still a new thing where they're tr- figuring out the pricing, my assumption is that the, the the subscription part of it would be that you would pay for it along the way where the upfront acquisition costs would be different. So I would think you're not going to pay that $500 up front, but you're going to pay for it over a length of time. Well, yeah, but or would they charge you, to Mike's point, because you have to have, for example, if you want the seat that you can get the subscription to heat, you have to Mm -hmm. have a seat that's equipped in the first place to be able to do that. So will they charge you up front more, you know, premium amount just to have that equipment? But then if you want to use that equipment, you have to pay even more generally it it there is some type of cost that would have to that the consumers would have to eat in the front because of the hardware that's attached to it um i mean just to be clear they're not doing that in the us now and based on what bmw said they're you know it's not rolling out here they're just experimenting with other features not heated seats i wonder if it is more applicable to like the really fancy cruise control. Like if you want the thing that flashes on your uh, mirrors that there's a car over there, that's like basic. That doesn't cost a lot of money. Every car has that. But if you want the one that keeps you in your lane or slows you down, then you subscribe to that one and it's already in there. Well, right now it's already in there, but you know, they're throwing out different ideas, not just BMW, but all the OEMs of this lane keeping assist a feature that you just talked about or automatic emergency braking, they're talking about some of those features. Um, in our research, people, 75% of those people wouldn't be willing to pay for those as well, only because they think, oh, it's safety features. It should be already on the vehicle. Isn't this sort of the downside of smart cars? Because before you would buy a car 
and, you know, you drove it off the lot, and the car was all yours, and you did with it what you want. But mm -hmm. in effect, these companies can increasingly control your access to different features on the car, right? Because they could, if you don't pay, they can make sure you can't turn on the heated seats or maybe you can't use the uh, certain anti-collision systems or road assist systems. So there's really no limit in the end, is there, on what they can charge you, as the airlines have done, for things that routinely people are used to just having because you bought the car. I, you're correct. Um, yeah, there, there are certain features that they that you and I would normally have already gotten in the vehicle in the acquisition cost. But, you know, they're again, they're finding different ways of monetizing from the consumers. And also they probably think, OK, well, I'm going to use these heated seats only in the wintertime. So, you know what? As a consumer, I'm going to subscribe to it for three months of the year. Well, we live in Southern California, so yeah. I'm going to say a month or two out of the year. You can only use your convertible to top for, for three months. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't have to pay for it for the rest of the 10 months of the year. As long so, as I'm not paying for it up front, though. Yeah, yeah, but I don't want to be double, yeah, yeah, double yeah. dipped and yeah, ripped but, off. But yeah. you don't, yeah, but you also don't want to get to a situation where you buy the car and then you get a notice saying, you've bought the car, it's yours, but if you want to start it, it's yeah. another hundred bucks. <laughs> 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 okay. Vanessa Ton, Senior Research Manager over at Kelly Blue Book. Uh, Vanessa, thanks. I don't know. I, I think it's crazy. Yeah, well, most of the things are. All right, <laughs> more in-depth to come. We're going to talk about, uh, oh, this is cheery, nuclear war and then the end of civilization. <laughs> and those are two separate topics, so buckle up for that. <laughs> Safety first, kids. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. People turning on their TVs in New York City. Might have to double-check the calendar, see if we're still in this year, 2022. Or maybe we're back in the 50s. The Emergency Management Department rolling out a public service announcement about how to make it through a nuclear attack. So there's been a nuclear attack. Don't ask me how or why. Just know that the big one has hit. Okay? So what do we do? There are three important steps that I want you to remember. Step one, get inside fast. You, your friends, your family, get inside. I just, the casualness at the beginning <laughs> I, I there. Know, so, so there's been a nuclear attack. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, 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 so the bomb's gone off. Okay. Is the, uh, is the U.S. in imminent danger of a nuclear attack? Uh, no, admitted uh, New York City's mayor, Eric Adams. But in justifying the new PSA, he says... It's always better to be prepared. <laughs> okay. David Kaplan is a reporter at our sister station, 1010 Winds in New York. David, thanks for being with us. Uh, you know, I remember uh, as a public school kid in New York City, they used to have these exercises where you'd have to duck under your desk in case of a nuclear uh, blast. And for some bizarre reason, they insisted to always remember to take your container of milk with you. And I remember, <laughs> I remember thinking, yeah, that's my priority. <laughs> in a nuclear blast to have my milk with me. This is kind of a bizarre thing, isn't it? There, there he is. There you are. Hey. Oh, yeah. oh, we thought we, we, we got really worried for a second yeah, that thought, this was not I a guess, comedy segment anymore. Yeah, we, we, we thought you got hit by a nuclear blast. Yeah, I know. I was going to say call the OEM, right? Yeah. But, yeah. I, I, this is weird, though, this whole PSA thing. I mean. Yes, it, it is. So when it came out this week, it was completely shocking. You know, no one was expecting it, really. Um, and you're right. I mean, you really you guys really hit the nail on the head in terms of it was almost hubris at first, the way that she's sort of introducing it. Don't ask me why, but the big ones I hit. 
right? It's even <laughs> introduced in this tone that doesn't really seem serious. And also the way it's shot, right? You know how everything in the video is blurry kind of, yeah. and it has this Armageddon look, right? It almost has this like Hollywood treatment, right? But she's um, very, she's so, very well dressed for a nuclear attack. Doesn't look flustered at all no, because she knows what to do. Yeah, uh, that's right. She's she wearing all black. Yeah. North, right? Black pants, black sweatshirt. No, but seriously, it did really surprise a lot of people. It came out of nowhere. You know, as everyone has said, there is no direct threat. Um, so it was kind of like, why? But then, you know, so Tenten wins. We spoke actually with the OEM's first commissioner. And she said, you know, listen, I know it's scary, but it's still very important. And she also told Wins that, you know, not necessarily for a nuclear attack, but for another type of natural disaster, right? It could be good for. I mean, like a but, tidal, like a tidal wave for what? <laughs> you know, I was wondering, and they didn't, she didn't elaborate, but I was kind of wondering the same thing, right? Um, but it does seem a little bit odd. And, you know, but the OEM is claiming that New Yorkers, they wanted to know this information, right? That New Yorkers, they wanted to know this, that people had been calling. I mean, listen, it's a big city like Los Angeles, and I'm sure they get a lot of requests, right? So it's a little bit surprising. However, in all seriousness, no, they did say um, that, you know, it came up after all this talk and all this stuff going on with Ukraine and Russia, that those were the concerns. And that's why they got those calls. Still, it definitely was surprised. And just here, you know, being in New York and how other New Yorkers are thinking, um, most people, I haven't really heard anyone, to be honest with you, or most people take it so seriously. I think most people are viewing the PSA um, kind of humorously. Well, it's like, like why? what we don't have enough to worry about, and now they're airing this thing. Well, right? I, Thanks, guys. Yeah. Well, but you know what? You know what? You know what it is, David. It, it it's and what we've been really kind of talking about is it's kind of tone deaf in so many ways. You know, she's very casual. She's kind of dressed in a casual way. She kind of in a, in a breeze. You know, she go. They dissolve from one setting to the next, and it just has this. You're trying to talk to Gen Z. Yeah, yeah, but it it doesn't really say this is urgent because your world is about to come to an end. It it just. Well, we don't want to alarm anybody. Yeah, right. You know, we don't want to upset <laughs> you guys, but there's a nuclear blast right now. I mean, it just is all wrong. Yeah, it's very, you know, and finally today, um, Mayor Eric Adams, he addressed it. And he obviously, you know, downplayed the fears about it. You know, he was saying it's, quote, you know, not alarmist. He denied it's that. He just said the key point was really that New Yorkers, and this probably applies to everyone anywhere, if you're ever in the case of a nuclear attack, that to remember the three key steps are get inside, stay inside, and stay tuned. But he does say <laughs> it's not alarmist. Those he are the other two. <laughs> yeah. We heard the get inside one. Those are the wow. Yeah, and stay tuned. Okay. Stay tuned. Listen to 1010 wins. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> or K and X. All right. Uh David had 1010 wins in New York, David Kaplan. All right. So now you know what to do. It's all gonna be fine. <laughs> yeah. Get right. inside. Uh, stay there and stay tuned. And stay in. and take your milk with you. That's what they told me. Well, you know. Take your container of milk. You never know. Can I get the... actually you want to know we were talking off the air. Yeah. The real thing yeah. is you want to get underground in a parking garage if you have one as deep as it can go because then you get the concrete above you and you get the building on top of the garage see they should but like do, you they know should do the announcement on that that's the way to do it not go indoors find and, one of those things yeah uh okay so keeping with our general theme of, of, happy, <laughs> of happy news the end of the world <laughs> yeah uh, when we come back Hopefully, we've got about 18 more years until total societal collapse on Earth. We'll explain that, so enjoy the rest of the time while it lasts.
This is Kagan X in depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Remember Mad Max Thunderdome? Yeah. 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 Well, it might look like that in another 20 years. Uh, <laughs> back in 1972, a bunch of scientists at MIT, they did some research. They were trying to quantify the risks of societal collapse, and they came up with this model, and it predicted that the end of civilization as we know it um, would be in 2040. Oh, we're getting close. 50 years later, a sustainability expert looked back over the MIT models and determined that they looked pretty accurate and that humans on Earth were indeed headed for terminal decline in the coming years. Gaia Harrington is that researcher. She's author of the forthcoming book, Five Insights for Avoiding Global Collapse. She is a sustainability and dynamic system analyst. Thanks for being with us. So this uh, is not a very optimistic uh, portrait of where we're headed, is it? Uh, it's not. However, I would say it's also not a doom, uh, doomsday scenario. It's a warning it, because my research shows, yes, we are, uh, we're not on track for a sustainable world. Uh, and this really shouldn't come as a surprise to many people, right? We're seeing us bumping into limits, environmental limits, social limits, governance limits. We see it all the time. Um, and what my research confirms is that, yes, yeah, so we're not on track for that, but we still have time to change and avoid a collapse. But we would have to do, it would have to be a, a massive shift in what we as, as a society strive for. All right. So what are some of the things we need to work on? And usually when these discussions get going, it's like a, a finite resources kind of thing. We're going to run out of stuff. We're going to start fighting over it. Um, that is one possibility, but like I said, I think the ultimate conclusion from my research is actually, listen, the root cause of all these things that we're seeing, right, you're right, we are seeing increased resource scarcity, especially where you live, for example, we see water scarcity, it gets worse every year, it gets drier, uh, we see social unrest, right, um, so all of these things will happen, but the root cause of that is our pursuit of growth. It's, it's not something that we can do. It's, it, there's nothing in this world on a finite body. The pursuit of growth ultimately will bump into limits. And that's what we're seeing happening right now. So we can't innovate ourselves out of some limits. We have that, um, but we cannot in, uh, invent ourselves out of all these limits. And that's what we're seeing right now. And well, that's the- Well, Gaia, what, what, what exactly would a, a societal collapse look like? Yeah. Thank you for asking. It does not mean that we're going to see through this. Uh, so it's not the end of humanity. Um, a collapse means a steep decline from a previous peak, which means that our welfare levels, our standards of living, as we are accustomed to, will be a lot less for future generations in general. That's what this. That's what we're heading towards if we don't change our ways drastically. You were saying we can't invent our way out of this. Is that usually the fallback? Because it kind of feels like it is. Oh, technology will save us because it's always getting better. Right. So eventually it's all going right. to be fine because we're going to have some some uh, amazing invention that's going to suck all the carbon out of the atmosphere. Yeah, that's a lot of faith, right? Because so far we haven't had that invention. So I'm like, okay. Uh, there is technological innovation uh, in this model, actually. So it is already incorporated. Yes, we are innovative. But at some point, um, you know, the thing is, as long as you don't change your goal, right, of, of, uh, of continuous growth, um, the new technology is mostly just going to serve that goal. So 
so that's what we saw, right? We, we had technological innovation, but it was actually mostly used to dig deeper and further for fossil fuels, for example. That's why that won't work just by itself. So I'm curious because, as we mentioned, your book is, is titled Five Insights for Avoiding Global Collapse. Suppose we do all five and it still collapses. Yeah, so I would argue that uh, if we do all five, um, we align ourselves on the track to a sustainable world. And um, that is avoided because that's what my research shows. We can still avoid uh, a collapse, um, but we would have to change our goal from growth towards meeting human needs directly within ecological boundaries. Okay, you, you did hear her, right? That it's not Mr. Captain Happy over there. Yeah. You know, what if it all ends up trash anyways? Uh, we could fix it, right? No, her, her next book is going to be Six Insights. Yeah, we needed one more because yeah, we didn't more. get it right with the first five. All right, uh, Gaia Harrington, uh, author of the forthcoming book, Five Insights for Avoiding Global Collapse. Do all five, you'll be fine. Sustainability and Dynamic System <laughs> Analyst. Gaia, thanks. Always leave them smiling. Oh, that's yeah. what we say, right? That's so, our motto. That's our last half hour there. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. We're back tomorrow. More doom at... and gloom then. No, maybe we'll have like a happy we show. Might. Well, you know what? It'd be nice to find out that, that those 4,000 beagles Yeah, look, we are, tried to save 4,000 dogs are, are, today. Are so. adopted. That would be it's all good about news. Balance. Yes, that would be good news. All right. Back tomorrow, 1 p.m.